Amos chapter 8. The book of Amos will be on page 1430 if you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew. God's holy word given to us for our good. Let us pray before we read it. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Through your word and for your son's sake. Amen. Amos 8, verse 11 really focusing just on that first verse, but we'll read through the end of the chapter uh, to get uh, some of the context of this pronouncement of judgment through the prophet Amos. Hear now the words of God. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria, or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides forever. Amen. If you do not have the truth, you have nothing. You're lost in a world. It's like walking through the darkness, trying to find your way, not knowing where you're going. If you do not have the truth, it can be very frustrating. apologize for the personal touch here, but... This weekend has been sort of a frustrating search for truth in our home. Uh, Yesterday, early afternoon, our youngest, Charlotte, stopped putting weight on one of her legs. And I figured that I had probably done something playing too rough with her or something. And uh, time goes on. It doesn't get better. We're trying to figure out what happened. We remember she had gotten a flu shot on Friday. And so... Was it that or was it clumsy old dad and what, you know, trying to find the truth? And eventually it gets so frustrating that yesterday in the evening I find myself at urgent care with, my, with our youngest trying to find out what is going on. What's the truth? Because if you don't know what's going on, you're sort of uh, becoming frantic and worried, sick with worry even. So, uh, find out she's got something called transient synovitis. Of course, I probably should have known that all along, right? Uh, Not to be all medical here, and I'll fail miserably, but flu shot, infection gets lodged in her hip joint, creates space, and there can be a period of seven to ten days where the hip just gives out. And so, but her not being able to talk to us and tell us what's going on, you're searching, what is the truth? If you do not have the truth... Uh, You have nothing. Truth is what matters. As the people of God, we are to be 
a people of the truth. A people of the truth. Not because it is our truth, not because it is we who have discovered it, but because it is God who has revealed it. And where we find that truth in our lives in this world, that source of truth is in his word, in his word that he has given to us for our good. In the category of things that will not go away, there's a pastor I've been mentioning a couple times, and he was back in the news this past week down in Atlanta. Uh, He has been saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, get away from the Old Testament. There's too much to lose and not enough to gain. By looking at the Old Testament, people uh, in today's world, today's society, will say, what kind of God is this? Uh, What are all these things that don't make sense to us? The Christian faith is just something I I want no part of because of the Old Testament. Discussing these kinds of things with some people this week. And really, one of the the biggest issues of what he's been saying, and he just came out with a book recently, is that the Ten Commandments are no longer morally binding on Christians, no longer morally binding on on the people of God, because there's been this change as time has gone on. And, of course, I'm talking about this with a couple of people. And where, where do we get the fact that the Ten Commandments are morally binding on Christians? Where do those moral commands come from? Well, they're rooted in the character of God. But think about it relative to the subject of truth. Why is lying wrong? Why is bearing false witness wrong? It's wrong because God is perfectly truthful. It's wrong because not only is God perfectly truthful, he is the truth. And all the things that he says, all the things that he reveals, will eternally be true. And since God never changes, his moral law can never change either because it is rooted in who he is. It's rooted in his person. He is completely and utterly true and truthful. The Reformation was ultimately a question about truth. It was a return to the simplicity of prizing the inspired word of God above all other words, above all human words. It was a planting of the feet upon the conviction that God has committed his truth to writing, and if he has done that, then that word is different than anything else we encounter in this world. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is a gift. It's a gift in multiple ways. First, it's a gift because that, that wonderful truth that God has given something to us for our good. He has committed truth to writing. We are to treasure that. Secondly, it's a gift because Scripture alone tells us that Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient to order our spiritual lives to the extent that any word of man or words of man are to be tested against that ultimate standard. Here's our life-transforming reality this morning. God's word is the source of the life of our souls. Its truth never changes, its power is abiding, and its authority is binding. Thus, above all other words, we must treasure it, we must not trifle with it, and we must trust it. Treasure it, not trifle with it, and trust it. We turn to the eighth chapter of Amos today which is an interesting place to go, but I believe a wonderful place as well. Amos was a prophet 
to the people of God, not by vocation, but he received this word from the Lord and, and he gives this word to God's people, prophesying to the northern kingdom, so Israel, uh, different from Judah at that time. The capital of Israel of the northern kingdom was in Samaria. Amos most likely prophesied within one generation of the fall of Samaria in 722 BC. Perhaps he prophesied just before the kingdom of Assyria reasserted its power and influence in the region. So something interesting to understand about the context of Amos is he is most likely prophesying in a time of relative peace and great prosperity in the northern kingdom of Israel. Just before Assyria reasserts its power and becomes an existential threat to Israel. And they would ultimately be that existential threat that would take down the the capital of um, the northern kingdom and then put God's people into exile. Something, uh, one of the fatal flaws of Israel's thinking was that they were deceived in thinking that all of this material wealth and prosperity, all of their physical, material needs being meant, met, meant that God was pleased with them. Another flaw in their thinking was that, well, God has made a covenant with us and rooted in these promises made to Abraham, so we're never going to be experiencing less of the blessing than we are experiencing now. It's always going to be progress Forward. We're always going to be experiencing more and more of all those promises that God made to Abraham. It's another common fatal flaw in the day of Amos. Of course, what they failed to understand was that God could fulfill all of those promises to Abraham, even in the midst of their going into exile, even in the midst of their coming under the judgment of God. This is shown to us in the way that Amos unfolds. He says some very short prophecies of judgment against some of the surrounding nations. But as early as the beginning parts of chapter 2 in Amos, the the focus is shifted to the people of God. And then from that point on in chapter 2, all the way through the middle of chapter 9, what we basically have are prophecies of judgment against God's people. He is most angry, most upset with the rebellion, the hypocrisy, and the sin of his people. We see that God is communicating his judgment under which Israel is coming in certain ways. He says that he is going to send a famine. He is going to send a famine. Now, this was, is going to get their attention, isn't it? And the people, uh, for people who are caught up in the cares and the concerns of the world, the word famine is going to get your attention. What would happen if you told people today, we live basically, I think we all would agree, in an age of abundance, particularly in our Uh, corner of the world? What would you do today if, or what would happen today if you told people that they would have to ration their food intake down to seven or eight hundred calories a day, or if they could only use one gallon of gas per week, or uh, perhaps most unthinkable, only one charge of the phone every 72 hours or so. Be lost, right? The idea of famine in an age of abundance is going to get the attention of the people, But God says this will not be a famine of thirst or or, uh, hunger, not uh, an absence of water or food, which may sound like a relief to them. The the Israelites are going, okay, good. It's not a famine of hunger. It's not a famine of water. Rather, it's going to be a withdrawal of the words of the Lord, as we read there in verse 11. 
What the Israelites perhaps failed to realize was that this removal of the words of the Lord was God basically saying that he's, he's done dealing with them. He's sent his prophets. They have ignored the voice of the prophets. This is a precursor to destruction and exile. So he communicates in the categories that they would understand, but he bends it to make a point, to make his truth known. What he's trying to make known is that the truth from God, the truth of his word, what he reveals to his people, that is the food of the soul. Calvin was famous for talking in these kinds of ways. He says, celestial doctrine or heavenly doctrine is the only food for the soul. God says, this is what I'm going to withdraw from you. The word for famine is a word that literally just means hunger. It's a, it's a hunger of the land. All of the land is going to be hungry and thirsty. You know, that time, those times you get that feeling of hunger where you're like, there's nothing else that I'm going to do until I get some food. You feel so weak. You feel desperate uh, to eat something. The problem with spiritual hunger is that a wicked and obstinate heart is often not going to feel that hunger, that shriveling up of the life of the soul, as long as the material needs are being met. In our age of abundance, I think this is certainly one of the, one of the flaws, one of the, the huge errors of our age, is that people, because their material needs are being met, uh, they don't realize how much the life of the soul is shriveling up and how much it is absent from their lives. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's something foundational to understand about being a human. That there is certainly a material, physical part of our existence, but we have a soul. How does that soul live? What does the vitality of that soul come from? comes from God's word. It comes from his truth. Jesus showed this to us in his life, didn't he? He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. All of his material needs, physical needs, not being met in the face of temptation. He says, man shall not live but alone on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's not just saying that, right? That's not just a saying. Jesus is revealing truth to us. So I wonder if we, we look at, at the context of Amos here, this idea of the famine, withdrawal of the words of God, and how Israel was, was certainly not seeing the depth of it, the seriousness of it. Point of application for us certainly could be wondering whether or not we are attuned enough to our own spiritual life to know how much we need the truth of God for the life and the vitality of our souls. Are we as a church in this world or in this nation or even just our own congregation, are we so caught up in the delight of God, in the truth about him, that we yearn for his truth? We, we, we are yearning for just even one more morsel, one more taste of the truth from God's word. Think about this silly controversy that I mentioned at the beginning today. Unhitching from the Old Testament, getting away from it, right? This is this one Man says, in, in reading the arguments of people who say such things, you get the feeling that uh, just this bankruptcy of their vision of God and the, and the bankruptcy of delighting in him. Ralph Davis, Presbyterian minister, Old Testament scholar, 
he said this about 10 years ago. He said, if once you have found God fascinating, that goes a long way towards curing the, scare quoted, problem of the Old Testament. Sure, there's lots of things in the Old Testament that are from a different culture and from a different time and at certain points hard to understand. But have you found God fascinating? More than that, are you delighting in God? Do you see him as the sovereign Lord? Do you see him as creator and yourself as creature? If you begin to adopt that posture, you go to his word and you say, this is God's word. If there's any problem, the problem lies with me. The problem doesn't lie with God. The problem is my own. Another thing we learn is how often uh, times of want will illuminate how much we were abusing things in times of plenty and how easy it is in times of abundance to forget our reliance upon God. You think of uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah prophesies that a drought is going to come upon the people of God and uh, at the same time, Elijah sort of withdraws from public life in order to say that the the, the dryness, the famine, the hunger that all of Israel is going to experience during this long drought, all of that, that is what your life is like without God. That is what spiritually you are without God's truth, without his word, without someone to bring his word to you. Elijah withdraws and the land runs dry. God was wanting to teach his people, and he wants to teach us today that we must learn to fear the famine of our souls more than the want of our bodies. Learn to fear the famine of your souls more than the want of your bodies. How much do you yearn for, do you long for, do you rely on the truth of God found in his word? We take all these things together and we realize how much we need to treasure God's word. This context of Amos, how much they abused that. And in the midst of receiving God's word and receiving warnings and threatenings and revealing from heaven through the words, the mouths of the prophets and just remaining obstinate. Do we treasure the word of God? If having the word of God, the truth of God taken away from you is like a famine, then having God's truth set before you is like a feast. It's like sitting at the table of a sumptuous feast. Every kind of food you could ever want, every kind of craving you ever would have. It is a privilege to be given truth from the word of God. This makes me think of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses speaking to the people of God And he says this, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 36, fascinating little statement, out of heaven he lets you hear his voice. The Israelites often didn't take it that way, did they? When they started to realize how mighty, how thunderous, how awe-striking the presence of God was, they said, Moses, you take care of this. You go, you talk with God, let us know what he says. But you go do it. We can't stand to be in his presence. Moses says, out of heaven, he lets you hear his voice. It's not a tame thing. It's not a calm encounter. But the privilege of hearing God's word. There's really two miracles there. Not only God speaking, but the miracle of Israel's survival. Moses says again in Deuteronomy 4, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Two miracles, God speaking, revealing truth, Israel surviving. See, when God speaks, things happen. 
When God speaks, life is created. He utters his voice, Psalm 46, the earth melts. This is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let there be light. And there was. And our world, our very universe was created. And with this same creative, powerful, efficacious word, God is building a people for himself in this world. He's building a people for himself and for his glory in the day of Amos. He is building that same people now. Those people that stand uh, as his people renewed in Jesus Christ. And this is where there's a a pillar of truth for us as Christians who see ourselves in, in the line of the faith of the apostles and living in the shadow of the Reformation. That this conviction that God is building a people, he is making a people through the life-giving, transforming power of his word, the truth that he gives, the truth that he reveals. The church, the mission of the church, salvation, discipleship, modern phrases like church growth, all of that, what does that come down to? It comes down to the fact that the church really has one thing to give to the world, the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. Because when we pray, what are we doing? Ultimately, we are praying that God would make his word efficacious in the world, effective in the world. That he would make his truth more evident to us. That he would make his truth more fruitful in our lives. That he would cause his word to bring forth more life and vitality of spirit. More sanctification and transformation in our lives. And that he would increase the effectiveness of his word in the world. This is all that we have, the word of God and prayer. This is what we have to give to the world. And that was the seedbed of the Reformation. So the scriptura, called the formal principle of the Reformation, the conviction upon which the Reformation began. Justification by faith alone is called the material principle of the Reformation. It was that truth to which God had led the people of God where they saw that a break was needed A change was needed within the church in order to preserve the integrity of the gospel. And the ultimate question was very simple. Very simple question. Has what God has said in his word matched up with what we have built within our own tradition? Can we say on the one hand that this is the word of the Lord, and on the other hand that the same authority is carried through into things that are not formally the word of God? What has God said? And the reason we need to figure that out is very simple. Because it is God's truth and God's word alone that cannot fail and that cannot err. Think about this conceptually. If a perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-sovereign God wills to reveal his truth to his people so that he might build a people in this world. And he wills to commit that truth to writing then necessarily what he says, what he reveals, is going to be inerrant and infallible and absolutely true. This does not mean that human beings never misinterpret it. That highlights, of course, the importance and the necessity of faithfully going to the words of Scripture and saying, what has God said? What has God said? Because ultimately, that's what really matters. The words of God, not the words of man. So if the church is going to grow, if the kingdom of God is going to advance, it must do so by the word of God. For only the word of God can give life to the soul. 
It's the only life for the soul. You go and you, you read the New Testament, go back to the source of the New Testament, and you say, this is exactly what men like the Apostle Paul were doing. Openly stating the truth. Very simple. Go to the words of Scripture. What is God saying? Open it up. Declare it openly that God might build his people in the world. Second Corinthians chapter 4, wonderful uh, passage of Scripture around which you can uh, build a doctrine of church ministry. Therefore, Paul says, having this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. God reconciling sinners to himself in Christ. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And Paul had a, a pretty bad go of it after he became an apostle in, in worldly, earthly categories. A lot of things that weren't very enjoyable for him in this life. He says, I don't lose heart. Because as I openly proclaim the truth, what is happening? God is building a people for himself. So then he says this, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Openly stating the truth of scripture, that God's power, the life-giving, life-transforming power of the word of God might go forth. And do its work in building the people of God. B.B. Warfield, wonderful defender of the authority of scripture. He says that when the scripture speaks, God speaks. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. And thus he says when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, faithfully opened up in the context of the church. There you can say that God is speaking there as well. So when God speaks, we listen and obey. We are not bound to follow the word of man like we are bound to follow the word of God. The word of God is where the power lies in our ministry. Uh, Martin Luther said it in a way that's perhaps uh, filled with a bit more flair than B.B. Warfield. No surprise there, of course. Uh, Luther, ever the showman. But here's your Latin lesson for the year. We're already thinking about Sola Scriptura, but here's your Latin lesson. Uh, Martin Luther said that scripture is norma normans non normata. Norma normans, non normata. That means that scripture is the norm of norms that cannot be normed. It's the norm of norms that cannot be normed. What does that mean? It's a norm. It's something that regulates things. It regulates the life of the church. It regulates the life of the Christian. But it's not just, it's not just one of many norms. It is the norm of norms. There's nothing that exists above it in the life of the church on this earth. It is the norm of norms. More than that, it cannot be normed. There's nothing that uh, we can't get together and, and figure out something that would go above Scripture. It's the norm of norms that cannot be normed. It cannot be stripped of its, reg- of its regulative power. We read in Amos 8, uh, after the verse that we're thinking about this morning, that there are young men and young women staggering from sea to sea, from coast to coast, not able to overcome their weakness, not able to overcome their need for the Word of God. The, 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 the image there is that human strength is not good enough in and of itself to overcome its need for the word of God. So the gift of sola scriptura is that we can know that our lives are to be ordered around God's word and no more. And because of that, we are to treasure the word of God and we are to say, what has God said? Just like in the day of Amos. And we see it from the other side. The, the despair, the misery of losing God's word. The wonderful gift of being given God's word today in Christ. Are we treasuring it? Are we treasuring it? Here's the mindset that we are to have. Listen to these words. These certainly are not mine. Uh, 
too beautiful, too wonderful. This is what's printed in the beginning pages of every Gideon Bible. Every Gideon Bible. And you, could, you can imagine that many of the people who come to know the Lord through uh, the work of the Gideons probably began by reading these words. And this is a wonderful way of reminding us how we are to approach the words of Scripture. It says this, The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. This is God's word. Treasure it. Do not trifle with it. Finally, trust it. Trust it. Why? Why trust it? Because it speaks of Christ from beginning to end. Christ is its grand subject. You know why we need to invest time studying the Old Testament? Because not only does it tell us about who we are, not only does it tell us various things about who God is, ultimately the grand subject of what it is doing, it is showing us Jesus Christ, the center of our salvation. John 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus says later on in John 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. John chapter 1, we read that Jesus came as the word of God. He's the embodiment, the enfleshment of the truth from God. The truth from God is the life life for our souls. Jesus Christ comes as the word, the embodiment of the truth. But the glory of it all is that Jesus did not come just to teach us things. He did not come just to show us things. He came to accomplish something, to complete something, to perfect something. And that's glorious not only because what it accomplishes, but because of who it was that did it. Jesus Christ, co-equal with the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, by whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. This one came, humbled himself, walked the road of righteousness, obeying the law of God for you and for me, so that when he stands before the Father, as we learned last week, he might present us in radiant splendor, cleansed of our sins, declared to be truly righteous because of what he has done. The one who came as the truth, the one who came as the grace, also came as the way. He is the way through whom we are reconciled to God, through whom we stand before the Father, and we can come to the truth of God knowing that its righteous demands have been met 
and all the things to which it calls us, we can do so joyfully and freely because of what Christ has done for us. He is the way. And that is what is glorious about this word, and that is why we are to trust what it says. The problem of Amos 8, God says, I'm withdrawing my word from you because of your sinfulness. Because God is holy and he can't be in the midst of sinners. See how that is reconciled by what Christ does in bringing us into the presence of God. And then receiving uh, the, the revelation that we now have, this side of the cross, the revelation of Jesus Christ and the words that he gives to us for our life. In scripture, the words of God, the word of God, different than a word of man. Treasure it, do not trifle with it, and trust it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is settled in the heavens. Never changing, always true. May we understand the majesty of such a truth. The words of of men, may they fall to the ground. They will be forgotten. Your word will abide forever. So may our life on this earth be about openly stating what you have said, openly treasuring what you have said, living by it. You are the sovereign Lord. You, You do what you please. So may we ever look to you and cling to you Love, treasure your word. We thank you and we praise you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.